Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Welcome, everybody. Another amazing episode of Smart People Podcast. This is Chris. And this is John. Thanks for tuning in. As always, got a great show today. We're going to dive into your brain, as we like to do here, and tell you why it sucks. Hmm. Am I right? My brain doesn't suck. No, it sucks. Well, I, your brain? I mean, I think, he, I think he just proved it to us. Yeah, you might be right. We'll get into there, but I'm going to change it up on you. I'm going to give you two action items. If you're listening to this podcast, there's two action items. Number one is subscribe. Don't just download us piecemeal. Subscribe. As you've seen in the second season, we've had some awesome people. If you haven't listened to all of them, go do that. And this one's not any different. So just subscribe so you make sure you get everyone. Roach, tell them how they get the, the app. I know we've been talking about this. A couple of apps. There's Downcast, which costs $1.99. It's got, you know, all the bells and whistles. But there's also Podcasts. And this is an iPhone app. Um, if you've got Android, I'm sure there's all kinds of podcast readers on there and stuff. So subscribe on those. But this one, Podcasts, made by Apple. It's free. It's awesome. It downloads all your podcasts directly to the phone. Search for Smart People Podcast on there. Subscribe on there. Subscribe on your iTunes, on your computer. If you want to subscribe in five different places, that would be awesome. That's true, too. But And the second one, this is new. All right? You haven't heard this one before. This is a new action item. 
We are going to be releasing a weekly, and this is aggressive, but a weekly newsletter. It's probably going to happen in a few weeks, but what we're trying to do is collect some email addresses. We're not going to spam you or anything. It's literally just going to be for this, this letter, and we have some really cool things that are going to go with it. The main thing, aside from talking about what's going on with whoa, the podcast. Whoa, whoa. Are you about to drop some, some knowledge on I'm some people here? I'm some knowledge. I'm so I don't excited. Know. I don't know if we should do that yet. Um, it's happening. It Are just you happened. sure? It just happened. You're signing us up for something. Okay. All right. John has hooked us up. We will be you streaming. You will be able to watch us live as it happens. So oftentimes, as in this episode today, we're recording it. It's Thursday. We're not going to release it till probably Sunday. So A, you're going to be able to listen to it as it happens, days in advance. B, you're going to be able to see us do it, which should really be the best part. But the real best part is if you watch it on Ustream with us, you can hear it and then ask questions yourself. So in this newsletter, I'm going to send out some some cool stuff and I'm just going to babble on. And then I'm going to tell you who we're interviewing, when, time, all that. You can watch us and then say, oh my God, I love this dude. I've read every book. Can you please ask him this? And if you're lucky, we'll pick a few from our, you know, our guests on at that time, and we'll ask that question. Now, before we overpromise and underdeliver here, I do have to. That's happening, dude. I know, but I have to let everybody know that, barring technical limitations, this is what we want to do. I'm gonna get it figured out. I want the sound quality to be as good as the podcast quality so everybody can listen. If they're listening live, it sounds good and it doesn't sound like we're talking in a bathroom. Still got to figure that out. I took some good steps today, but we should have this up and running in a couple weeks, possibly. Yeah, we're going to aim for a few weeks, two um, weeks. But yeah, no, it should be fun. You guys can interact with us. You can ask questions. You'll be able to hear the guests and that kind of stuff. Ask questions on the fly. You can see the new studio. Yeah, you can see the new studio. You can see how much we do different quirks that both of us have as we're sitting at the microphones. You can laugh at us. Doesn't matter. So make sure, again, that the action item there is go to the website, smartpeoplepodcast.com, okay? Smartpeoplepodcast.com. And in the upper right-hand corner, there's a thing with, you put exclamation marks, didn't you? Yeah, there's a subscribe to the newsletter box up there. You fill in your name and email address. You hit subscribe. It sends you an email that says, hey, welcome to Smart People Podcast Newsletter. Did you want to subscribe? And you have to click the link to activate it. This is so that we don't get spam people signing up for the old newsletter. It's called a double opt-in for all you nerdy people out there. But make sure that you sign up on the website and then hit confirm when you get the email from us. So pause this episode right now, subscribe and do it and do that. So newsletter and the episode. Okay. Okay. Enough, enough. All right. Let's jump right into this week's episode. Really awesome. Right up my alley. And then we got into a little tech stuff. So Roach jumped in too. We talk with David DeSalvo and David is an awesome dude. He's an author. I would say first and foremost, he's got, you know, a background in, he, he talks about the intersection of science, technology, and culture. He's been on, you know, in, in the Scientific American Mind, Psychology Today, Forbes, Wall Street Journal, Salon, Esquire, I mean, everywhere. And he has a book out. It's titled, What Makes Your Brain Happy and Why You Should Do the Opposite. So think about that. Just that title alone, you need to read this or at least listen to what he has to say. As we've talked about in the podcast in the past, your brain has some things wrong with it. It's an incredible machine, but you need to know where you're going to go wrong. 
And David has some some ideas and some proven methods to kind of help you make your brain the most efficient thing possible. Roach, you look like you got something to say over there. No, I was going to say, we forgot to ask him what his Twitter name was, and it's NeuroNarrative. So if anybody wants to see the stuff that he posts daily on Twitter, you can see that. He links to his blog, different websites, all that kind of stuff. So check him out. Follow him on Twitter. Yeah, I mean, if you go to his website, daviddesalvo.org, um, he's got a really cool blog on there. It's called The Daily Brain. And we actually, one of the, the things that he talks about on there, we talk with him about, and that is you'll have to wait to the end of the interview to hear about brain booster drinks and do they work. I asked him about ginseng. He talks a little bit about some, some chemicals that work and some that don't. So make sure you listen all the way through for that interesting tidbit. But we also talk about using your brain to predict the future and why it, it wants to beat you up so bad and things like that. Really pumped for this episode. Hope you guys enjoy it. And here is David DeSalvo on his book, What Makes Your Brain Happy and Why You Should Do the Opposite. I really am glad that I stumbled upon, you know, your works, your writing, your blog, because everything that you talk about, you seem like just a genuinely curious person who wants to find out why we do what we do and why we are who we are. Is that a pretty good summation? That is an excellent, 100% accurate summation. That's really what drives me is is just an ongoing curiosity that spanned probably the better part of my adult life into figuring out why we think the way we think and why we do what we do. And really, it's the central point from which it comes is, is, is kind of a self-exploration. Asking yeah. myself, why why do I think <laughs> this way and why do I behave this way? Right. When you notice this curiosity, what path did you take to get to where you are today? You know, an accomplished writer and obviously a smart guy. You've been all over the place talking about these types of things. Kind of how did you get to where you are? You know, it's it's a rather winding path. When I was in, I, I was a, a English literature undergrad, if you can believe that, <laughs> and I really was very drawn to literature. I, I I think I was drawn to it now in retrospect, mainly because of the the analytical aspect of trying to figure out what they, you know, not just what the intentions were of an author in trying to communicate a, a particular character's psychological traits and so forth, but also just I was just kind of I was just kind of enamored with the whole landscape of narrative. You know how characters interacted, how personalities interacted. Now that I look back at it years since, I can see how that really dovetailed very closely with an interest in psychology because what I was really interested in was the psychology of character development. And I always liked writing. I always thought of myself as, as being you know, somebody who would, who would one day be a, a journalist. So I went to graduate school for journalism, and that kind of led me to a couple of different sort of ways of looking at writing it at the time. Um, it was right when the mosaic was hitting. You know, it was right when the uh, World Wide Web, not you know, the, the graphical World Wide Web was hitting. It was right in that window of opportunity. So, I was kind of just enamored by that, and it, and that kind of started me thinking about well, what's this going to do to the to the, you know, what's this going to do to media? What's this going to do to communication? And and that that sort of led me in a lot of different directions. And one of them was I became a communications consultant helping clients, uh, both 
commercial and, and federal and local state clients figure out ways to communicate messages to their target audiences. And a lot of those messages had to do with public health, um, you know, how to encourage people to take encourage better behaviors and discourage worse behaviors and so forth. And so I kind of became this, this consultant business wonk, if you will. And really for a period of time there, I was not doing the, the strictly speaking journalism thing. I was kind of taking the route of being a communications consultant. And over time, the kind of the past has, has come back to me really wanting to communicate with, with bigger audiences about these things I'm really passionate about. And, and those things include you know, an array of science topics, an array of sociology and psychology topics, and neuroscience topics. So long story short, um, <laughs> it, 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 always, it has always involved communication, it has always involved the, the need and kind of the passion for, I guess I would call it public education, and is the kind of the way I've gotten to where I am now, where I'm writing articles and books about this stuff, is, is you know, over the course of years has been kind of the circumnavigation, but but yeah, that's kind of why how I wound up where I am, and now it's 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 a place I love being because now I target the topics that I that I'm most passionate about, and those are the things I pursue. Are you surprised with how much people communicate now, or was this something that you saw, you know, ticking upward and trending towards that way? I, you know, I think I saw rudiments of it. I don't. I, I'm sure I did not see where this was going. Uh, the, the breadth of it now is just, you know, so astounding. But back when I started experimenting in, in, I guess, what would have been called social media at the time, you know, the World Wide Web was a text-only interface. It was something that basically people used in libraries, and right. you know, academics used it for research. And and even then, I remember back then. Uh, I was writing for a couple of different college newspapers, and I was writing about this thing that was starting to become more popular, the World Wide Web, and, in, and even in text-only form, I was kind of blown away by it, because it just, it just kind of floored me that you could have access to so much knowledge at your fingertips, because I, like you know most people in my age group, grew up in the, the Dewey Decimal System, you know, where you... <laughs> <laughs> you went into the library and you found your little cards in the in the in the little card case and then you went and found your book. So the whole thing kind of floored me even before it took off into this graphical uh, you know, phenomenon that it became. But in addition to that, I was also kind of marginally involved in, in back then what they called bulletin board systems, which, you know, were the early precursors of what, what we would now call social networking. And right. and at the time you know, a lot of people were involved in that, but it, it was still very niche groups uh, of, you know, tech-savvy people who were doing the bulletin board systems. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't the everyday thing. You know, it wasn't most people weren't weren't doing it. It was actually kind of cumbersome because you had to know a lot of you had to know programming. Uh, you know, back then, you know, friends of mine who were a lot better than I was with this stuff were you know they were programming in Linux to to create bulletin board systems about. And different topics, you know, much like we do now with websites that are focused on whatever psychology or, or pharmacology or whatever. You know, back then there were bulletin boards that were that were the same. They were focused on particular topic areas. So the rudiments of all this were kind of there. But no, I, I don't think I could have foreseen where it was going. It always it you know, all of that always kind of struck me as being as having an appeal to very select groups of people that were just particularly drawn to the technology. And 
I think when the, the threshold was crossed is when we went from having those kind of enclaves of tech-savvy people, you know, and then that became kind of seeped into this larger audience of people who, who weren't necessarily tech-savvy but were interested in that. It became a bigger audience, and then the market incentive, you know, kicked in. And as soon as the market incentive kicked in, as soon as, you know, for instance, movie production companies found out that they could use the web to promote films. And as soon as Neiman Marcus and Walmart and whatever figured out that they could use this to sell product, you know, as soon as that happened, everything changed. But it seems to change. I mean, in retrospect, now I know it happened over the course of a number of years. It seems like it happened all once. But, you know, going back now, thinking back to 1993 was when Mosaic came online. And when I was sitting in the, the media room at University of Florida and I was thinking about this, this new technology that came online, Mosaic. And I remember there was 12 of us in this program. All our jaws just dropped. Uh, we, we, were, we just couldn't believe what we were watching. And, you know, from that time to now, it doesn't really seem that long. And I guess, relatively speaking, it isn't that long. But, my God, how much has happened? <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, the, the, the world has literally changed. It is kind of astounding. And I, I want to completely change gears a little bit now and dive into... Your book, you know, what makes your brain happy and why you should do the opposite. I think that the title alone is fantastic and kind of jumped out to me. There's so many questions I have when I read that title out loud. I don't really even know how to start. But the first thing I will say is after reading your book, I had this thought. You know, people always say the brain is amazing. It's incredible. It's, you know, this tool we can't replicate. And then I start to think, but it's really screwed up. You know, and I'm wondering, have we almost out evolved our brain? Have, have we, do we live in an environment that it, it's no longer any good? I'm laughing not because of what you're saying is intrinsically <laughs> funny, but because you've, you've echoed things that I have said almost word for word <laughs> to other people. Yeah. It is true. I, you know, my, my, my theory is this. Our brain is very well equipped, has been, you know, evolved to be very well equipped to do very essential functions that have that have led us to be survive, to survive as a species. One of those is that we are able to make predictions. You know, we can predict what's coming next with a fair degree of accuracy. You know, the processing speed of of uh, you know is another thing. Memory is another thing. Our ability to both uh, recall events and also to construct future events based on information that we're really recalling. You know, we, we construct the future based on what we recall from the past. So all these things are incredible, but I think you make a very valid point. Um, at the same time, brains in our heads have created a culture that is frankly outpacing our ability to evolve. Yes, and that's a great way of putting it. It's kind of this nature of the beast that I don't think any of us have really got our arms around yet. I mean, we're creating technologies that we can't really keep up with from a natural evolution standpoint. Hmm. Um, it's, and it's not that our brains, you know, our brains are, are the, the, the enormity with which, uh, the, enorm, the enormous amount of information with which we can wrangle on a second-by-second -second basis on any given day is just immense. No one can question that. But you know what? The collective power of our, of our brains coming together, these groups, these... Uh, you know, whether you call them brain trusts or academic institutes or whatever you want to call them, we're coming up with some stuff that's that's pretty darn remarkable. I mean, we're we're getting to the point here where we're we're creating stuff that's operating very nearly at the speed of thought. 
And, you know, there's going to come a point, I think, anyway, this is my, if you, if you could allow me my, my Kurzweilian uh, singularity hub of moment, I, I, I think we are getting to this point where we are going to outpace the capacity of any individual brain. And, and from, from, a, from a biological evolutionary standpoint, I mean. Right. And so, you know, then we're, we're, we're what we find ourselves in these societies that are just, that are hyper- Information-centric, um, and by virtue of that, also consumers, consumer-centric, and just nonstop flow. It's almost like we've, it's almost like we have destined to to immerse ourselves in a nonstop flow of information. Which, in a way, if you think about it, it's kind of an insane thing to want to do to yourself. But you know, we've done it, and you know, kind of the question to me is, well, what then? You know, I mean, we we kind of have to come to terms with some limitations here, I think, and that's kind of how I see it. I mean, I think we're I think we're getting to this point of of where we have to deal with certain natural parameters that, you know, they we we don't we don't have to resign ourselves to accept that we are somehow feeble in the face of the, the cultures we've created, but we do have to acknowledge that there are certain limitations that are just going to be there. Um, and how we deal with those and how we address those, I think, speaks a lot to where we're going as a species. Now, do you think we'll actually deal with those limitations? Because, I mean, when we look at that, take, for example, Google Glass. You know, they've, uh-huh. they've developed these glasses that you can put a augmented reality basically over everything that you're looking at, have all the computing happening right at, I mean, right at your eyes, anything that you're looking at. And then people always talk about, putting chips into, I guess, like nanoparticles or whatever. I don't, I don't know what the mm-hmm. correct term is, but we, I feel like humans are determined that we're going to meld ourselves with computers and make ourselves, like try to make ourselves superhumans. I mean, do you think we're actually going to take a step back and say, okay, listen, we've got computers that are so fast, can process so much at touching the screen. This is enough. We're good. Or do you think that we're going to keep going until the point where we can embed those computers and kind of flow into that singularity that you're talking about? I, I think we are flowing to the singularity. I, I think wow. that the, both the market incentive primarily and the kind of, it's a little difficult to put words around this, but it's kind of an ephemeral sense that we just think we need to just keep doing more and more and more and, and to limit ourselves is, is, is seen as some kind of weakness, I think. Yeah, I think we're headed there. I mean, I, I think we're headed to, to the cyborg reality, for lack of a better way to put that. And, you know, again, it's going to be for better and it's going to be for worse. I mean, I, I, I think there's going to be some things about that that are going to be remarkable, I, that, you know, some advancements that are certainly going to... Um, I mean, a lot of a lot of what I've been studying lately for, for the next book I'm working on is feedback technology because, you know, our brains are essentially extremely advanced feedback loops. And if you can... Envision, and I think a lot of the kind of the singularity type technologies are, are kind of headed in this direction. If you can envision technologies that integrate with your, your brain and your nervous system that allow kind of immediate feedback such that you're not even consulting an app on your iPhone or you're not looking at a database on a website, you're actually in real time experiencing a feedback mechanism, you know, giving you knowledge, giving you information that's providing you with a way to change, or maybe it's automatic change, you know, maybe it's something akin to, you know, immediate lowering of blood pressure, for instance. 
you know, that kind of thing is it's going to, it's hard to argue that that's a negative because, you know, there's certain, I think very positive consequences that are going to come from that. But at the same time, we have to acknowledge and just be realistic about the fact that there's going to be a lot, a whole lot of other stuff that's going to come along with that. It's going to be very, very, very questionable. <laughs> and what that all that is right now, I'm not exactly sure, but you can, you know, take a look, take a look at any range of technologies that have been developed in the last 50 to 100 years. And you can see that you've got some things that have been very positive. And then you've got a lot of stuff that is just, you know, it, it borders between useless, bizarre, and dangerous. And that's going to happen here, too. You know, that's the nature of, of technological development. So I think we're going, to have to, we're going to have to come to terms with that. That's actually a good the point. machines are going to turn I against know. us. That's the scary <laughs> part. I guess we started off talking about kind of the imperfections of the brain, and I want to get back to that a little. I've heard the term kind of cognitive bias, and I feel like it's a hot topic amongst um, a good amount of books these days. And I think you do a great job of breaking it down. You know, it's a scientific, uh, you know, idea, if you will. But you kind of give us some of the, you know, the the dumber for for us who don't understand it. You can dumb it down to our level. So I was hoping you could talk about exactly what you're saying when you say, you know, the things that make the brain happy are almost kind of self-destructive, if you will. Yeah. Well, the the premise of of the book is this: is that the brain. Um, among among the very many different facets of the brain that have evolved over over the course of of eons, there are there are elements that have evolved specifically to to kind of predispose us to want to reach a point of homeostasis, and by that I mean um, a, a consistent sense of comfort, stability, consistency, um, conservatism to an extent. You know, we like. We like to be like what, what we have. We want that. We want that unified rhythm that keeps things just kind of flowing. And, and challenges to that that come both in a physical form and and an intangible form um, occur to our brains as threats, and it causes the amygdala to fire up. And this is something that's observable in in, in MRI experiments. And when that happens, is you know, our brain experiences goes into a, a threat response mechanism. So this happens when you're, you know, driving down the street and someone crosses the lane and they're coming straight at you. Obviously, we know what's going on in your brain at that point. It also happens when you find yourself in a political argument and someone is directly affronting a position that you've held near and dear for your, most of your adult life. So, you know, we experience it on both physical and intangible levels. The question is... You know, to what extent are we reflective upon this, and 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 can we kind of redirect such that we are not sabotaging ourselves? Now, you know, in the physical situations where you you know you've got to swerve your car, you're going to be killed. Well, that's one thing. But in the other situations where you're in a religious or a political debate, I think that's a point in which you can insert um, what, what Mark Lewis is one of my favorite authors on on. Uh, neuroscience who writes a lot about addiction, he, he says you need to insert a reflection moment. And that's, that's, I think, where we stumble a lot. Because when, for instance, you're being challenged on a point, any of us, our automatic inclination is to fall into something which is very well known now as confirmation bias. We want to look for the information that supports our existing position, and we want to discount information that 
argues against it. It's almost a knee-jerk first reaction for, for everybody and very, very hard to get around. Now, if you kind of train your thinking to insert that reflection moment and say, you know, wait a minute, maybe, maybe I am ignoring something here. You know, maybe there's a point to be made here. I mean, I may, I may not admit it in this moment, but maybe I'll go back and study this a little bit more. I think if, if there were more of that kind of thing going on, I think we'd find ourselves in kind of a more pleasant societal situation, first of all. We could probably uh, fix the uh, current political system now, too. Well, right. And, you know, and, and the thing about the political system is you take things like confirmation bias and then you, and then you buttress them with billions of dollars. So, you know, you, not only do you have this inbuilt cognitive bias, which we all suffer from, but you support it with this, with this massive financial political infrastructure. Um, that kind of, in a nutshell, explains, you know, what our, what our political system is. But, yeah, there's all sorts of things like that. You know, another one is, that I talk about in the book is framing bias. You know, we tend to see things in, in light of parameters that are pre-established. We don't even really, really know why they're pre-established. We grow up with a certain amount of scripting, I like to refer to it as, and I'm not the originator of that term. A lot of other people have used it. But, you know, you grow up with a certain amount of scripting, and that scripting kind of predisposes you to look at things within this particular framework. And when you look at something outside of that framework, your brain actually sounds alarms. You know, again, the amygdala actually fires up. Your ventral striatum actually revs down. The ventral striatum being the part of the reward mechanism in your brain. So the threat response goes up, the reward mechanism goes down, and all of a sudden you're ready to fight. You know, and these are things that happen so automatically, we normally don't think about reflecting on them. But, you know, I have to kind of argue with Lewis that if we... And, and my, my personal term, for he, he says a reflection point, I, I call it the awareness wedge. I think that if we were better at training our thinking about inserting an awareness wedge between where we are currently, whatever we're doing currently, arguing, saying, whatever, and where we are going to be in that next step, if we could put that wedge in place, you know, maybe we'd be better off. Um, and there's a lot of things like that. I mean, there's this... You know, so many of these biases that we're just, we are prone, and this is something I try to communicate in the book. It's not, a, it's not a slight against any kind of person. It's not a slight against any kind of political persuasion or religious persuasion or anything else. It is, a, it is what we are as humans. These are things that we all experience. And to the extent that we can become more aware of them and then perhaps change our behavior based on that awareness, I think we're all a little bit better off. Now, where do you think this originated from, and how how did it serve us well in the past? I mean, it seems like if we're unable to think about other people's opinions, we're unable to stop and and you know question the other side or anything like that. I don't know at what point did that work in our favor as opposed to now when it probably works against us. I think the short answer to that is probably a number of different ways to approach that from. Uh, um you know, an evolutionary biology standpoint, but my my short way of approaching it would be that I think I think most cognitive bias is, in a, if you will, a distorted sense of normalcy. And by that I mean I think all of these things that we talk about have served an evolutionary purpose, um, and and they still do. You know, there are points in which it is it is in our best interest to frame out a different perspective. You know, I don't want to make the catch at the point that in each and every case that we do this, we're wrong and we're, we're better served not to. 
but I think that there's that there's a a kind of a if you were to kind of trace the evolutionary thread of a lot of this stuff, you would find that there's there's adaptive normalcy to a lot of it that is simply in the course of cultural evolution has taken on a different kind of flavor. And so, you know, let's just take something very broad, selfishness. <laughs> you know, there probably was a very good reason we can we can probably all get in touch with this to, to be very selfish about, you know, the classic example of our ancestor on the savannah, you know, looking for a food source and finding that food source. Well, you know what? Either it's either you or someone else is going to get it. And if someone else right. gets it, you, you, you may be the one that doesn't get get home that night. So, you know, I mean, there's things like that that I think are very in, built into us instinctually. But when you, the, the interesting thing is that when you kind of catapult those things thousands and millions of years ahead into our, our, you know, civilized cultural frameworks that we've developed over time, they take on a different kind of meaning. Right. Right. Um, and that was the thing about how have we kind of evolved out of it. So I guess that kind of touches on that. Yeah, and, and, you know, maybe we are evolving out of some of this stuff. I think that's one of the interesting things about human evolution in general is, you know, because of the pace at which it moves, and because of the pace, and because of, there's two things. The pace of, of human adaptive evolution is extremely slow. We know this. The pace of cultural evolution is extremely fast. So we have these two kind of dynamics that are always kind of working against each other. So we can't really... And there are some researchers trying to do this, and they're probably doing very good work. But it's extremely hard to know how we are evolving as a species biologically. It's probably out of all of our three of our lifetimes before you know there's going to be some real advances made to know. Oh yeah, you know that that gene that we identified, you know that that that's, that actually was changing the way we think about you hmm. know selfishness. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean that that kind of thing we just don't know right now. What we do know is that we have these sets of mechanisms that we have brought into this new cultural or relatively new cultural framework. And sometimes they work for us, sometimes they work against us. And the question is, and, and, and this is what drove me to write this book, by the way, what I want to know is how can we tell the difference? And can we? You know, and can we, can we insert that awareness ways in such a way that we can think more deeply about these things and maybe, hopefully, make some improvements in our decision-making. Right, and that's why I like the fact, you know, what, what makes your brain happy and then why we should do the opposite. At least it makes us think about what the opposite is. One of the things that, that sucked me in right away in the book, you talk about, you give this scenario of walking into an office on the first day of a new job and how your brain is making all these calculations and then the way you describe it is your brain is trying to convince you that you've been here before or you recognize these things. Again, it goes back to right. finding that solid footing, you know, being able yes. to predict it. And what I wanted to know is, is our brain, does it do a good job of taking in stimulus and then predicting what's going to happen, helping you make decisions and things like that? Or I oftentimes feel like, I could walk through a scenario, say I'm going to start a new job, I can go through how that new job's going to go before it actually happens. And then I mm -hmm. think, that's a ridiculous idea. Like, I, I should know this by now that I'm completely wrong. So I guess a long way of getting to the question of, can we predict things? Should we listen to our brain when we try to predict things? What's your recommendation there? It's going to be a mixed bag recommendation as, as some of these things are because, because it's a very messy 
cognitive science is, of course, by nature a very messy thing. But what I would say is that I think our brains are are functionally proficient at making predictions when we have previous experience from which to, to draw on. So in the case of, of you walking into the office for the first time, you know, you've been in other offices, you've had other jobs, your brain is drawing back on those memory points, and it's constructing a new, quite literally, a new neural network that relates to this new situation you're in. That neural network is, is comprised in part by nodes of information that it's drawing on from past experience. So, but, you know, there's a few caveats there. Now, number one caveat is our memories are very failable. So, yes, your brain is drawing on that past experience. Is that past experience completely accurate? Probably not. You know, we know there's this well-established uh, phenomenon called confabulation, which is basically that, you know, our brains are not seamless recollections. What they are is they're, they're pieces of information which we reconstruct and we fill in voids, even though we're really not aware we're doing it. So, so, yeah, you get into that new situation. Part of what you have to realize is, yeah, to, to an extent, your brain is drawing on some very real information that it has, you've experienced in the past and probably will benefit you in the future. But at the same time, you're probably drawing on some stuff that really never happened. Um, you know, you've confabulated in your memory, and that's how reconstructive memory works. So that's one thing. The other thing is, we also have to understand that our brains have this enormous capacity for for visioning future outcomes. And so, like you're talking about, you know, you, you start a new job, and, and it doesn't take long, and I've had this same experience. It doesn't take long. You sit in your new office for a couple hours, and you pretty much you can pretty much kind of draw it on your mind and it's, and it's a huge, you know, elaborate scenario of what's going to happen to you in the next month in this job. Well... Yeah, maybe some of that's true. Maybe some of that will happen. But you also have to recognize the fact that your brain is busy constantly constructing these scenarios. Um, it's doing that as, as, as a survival, you know, in part as a survival mode, because the more potential scenarios that it can generate to your brain, this seems, the more possible threats you can offset. Um, and at the same time, the more possible rewards you can capitalize on. See, it's always this threat-reward pendulum that we're going back and forth with. That's such a cool, like, John and I are just looking at each other. That's such a good, concise, clear way of putting it. Yeah, and I was just going to ask, too, why our brain tends to always think of the negative. I mean, I know for myself, you know, there might be one positive scenario in my mind, but 50 ways that this could just go terribly wrong. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think I think that's right, and I think that's that's in part because um, because you're you're you know as as this kind of very advanced prediction machine that is extremely, for lack of a better word, fickle. Because you know, again, we we like to be in homeostasis. We like mm-hmm. to have the, the 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 holy trinity of stability, certainty, and consistency, and that's just how we're wired. Uh, even the most risk-taking of us. Because you know, some people say, oh, I'm not like that. I'll, I'll, I'll right. climb any mountain. I'll jump out of any airplane. Well, that might be true, but if I look at your brain under un, under a microscope, I'm, I'm going to pretty much tell you that these, these these basic principles apply to you, too. Now, maybe maybe you have more of a risk-taking personality. That's fine. But as a matter of evolution, your brain pretty much wants to be stable. And so because it does, when you're thinking through these scenarios, 
you know, it's pretty, it's pretty predictable that you're going to think about the things that are going to cause you the most harm, potentially. Um, and those are the things you're trying to head off, you know. And, and then, you know, it's, it's funny because there's this kind of this, uh, I don't know if there's a term for it. If there's a term for this, someone should create one. But we almost feel bad when we're having these kind of, these, we, we're thinking through the, 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 the potential pitfalls. And then we let slip through like a really cool reward possibility. <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah. You know, and then we're like, oh, crap, we can't think about that. What about all this other stuff that could go wrong? Right. You know, we get, we get to dwell on the reward, we're going to get screwed. You know, so it, it's it's a funny thing that we do, and we all do this. But, yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> now, is there something I, the brain does that almost treats a negative thing as a reward? Because a lot of people when they have those bad things happen, they're like, oh, I knew this was going to happen. And it almost yeah. sets off like like some sort of sick happiness in them where they're actually happy that the bad thing happened because that's what they it's thought a, was going to happen. That's a great, great point. And you know what? Um, there's a whole field devoted to that cognitive science develop, devoted to that very thing. And what really does happen, it's, it's a very real phenomenon, is if you train your thinking enough to dwell on the threat possibilities. You are actually creating a reward scenario that is, that is dopamine-driven, you know, dopamine being the what we typically refer to as the reward chemical in your brain. It's, it's what drives you towards things. And, and yes, if you train yourself to focus on any number of bevy of horrible possibilities, and then one of them comes true, what's really going on is your brain's getting a jolt of dopamine. Because you are being rewarded for being correct. That's disgusting. <laughs> yeah. That's disgusting. <laughs> it's true, though. And, and, you know, it goes both ways. And this is the reason why we have to be careful about how we characterize the brain and, and why it's not an absolute or black and white thing. It's a very messy, messy... If anything I've learned writing this stuff is, man, this, this is messy stuff. Um, the whole dopamine-driven you know, driven cycle where we are, we are driven towards rewards... God, man, that works for us in so many ways, and it works against us in so many ways. And you know what? There's no equation to figure out which one, which way it's going to go. You know, you may find yourself in love, and man, that dopamine machine is working overtime to get you there, buddy, because you got the reward in sight. <laughs> but at the same time, man, you might have tried some crack cocaine, and your dopamine system is working overtime to get you more. You know, and it, and that's. And that's the thing about how the brain works. It's, it's almost ambivalent to the rewards that are presented to it. It's, it, it I call it, I, in the book, I think I refer to it as an unprotected power grid because it's, it's immensely powerful, but it's also very easily hacked. <laughs> you know? yeah. and, and, and the irony is we're the one hacking it. We're both just sitting here, like thinking back to all the times. Oh my God, I totally did that just for my own little high. That's, that's it's bizarre. But David, thanks so much for being on the show. I know we um, we've gone over time a little bit, and I I had this other question. I can't let it slip, and it's kind of a plug sure. for your blog, which you know you can find all your stuff at daviddesalvo.org, and then your blog is the Daily Brain, and it's phenomenal. Every single post, I was like, oh my gosh, great question. So at first, I wanted to ask you about the one article, Why Drinking Makes You Think You're Hot, the Reverse Beer Goggles. But I'm going yeah. to let our listeners go read that one on their own because the one that okay. I'm really interested in is when you talk about brain booster drinks and are they yeah. safe 
because today, literally today, I went, I, I work in Chinatown in DC and I went to a little Chinese store and I bought vials of ginseng and I put them in my tea because I was like, oh, I want to try this one. And I wanted to know what your research and what your findings said about brain booster drinks. Tell them something bad. No, just all good. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll have to echo the, the findings of, the, of Carl Zimmerman, who's an excellent science writer who kind of did his own, his own deep six research on this. And it's a mixed bag because there's, there, are, there actually is some very credible research on, uh, for instance, theanine being a, uh, a, a chemical which has a, a neuroactive property, and it does seem to result in greater levels of relaxation and, and less stress and, and better sleep patterns. And there are, in you know, among those drinks that I talk about in that article, there are some that have that have fairly high levels of theanine. And you can also just go to a store and buy capsules of it. You know, um, it goes without saying they're going to charge you a huge premium on these drinks. Right, it's, it's all the rage. But so. You know, for that one, there's pretty good clinical evidence. For a lot of this other stuff, not so much. Um, one that a lot of people stick in stuff, and it's in, hell, it's in Red Bull, uh, you know, tyrosine. We don't really know what that does to you. I mean, it, it, and in the trace amounts that it shows up in these, in these beverages, it's probably doing nothing. I mean, frankly, you're probably urinating it out. Huh. Not crude about that. But, um, but, you know, it's a mixed bag, and I think... I think where we go, where we always seem to go with this stuff is that this stuff hits the market before we really have any sense of what's going on with it. And, it, and it's this weird loophole in the FDA that allows this to happen. You know, as long as something is categorized as a supplement or a vitamin, <laughs> you can pretty much sell it. Nice. You know, um, if it's a food item now, you know, if it's something that, that you said, okay, then, then you got a problem. Then that's got to go through all sorts of analysis. But, hell, you call it a vitamin? Yeah, go ahead and sell that crap for $6 a bottle or whatever. In a gas station. So yeah. we don't really know. You know, some of this stuff might, might work, but a lot of it probably won't. Okay, so the, the theanine is the good stuff and everything else, eh, not so much. Is that what I can take away from this? Well, theanine is one I can speak to directly because I've seen the clinical research on it, and, and there is some pretty good research. It's not it's not 100% conclusive, right? but it, it kind of falls in the same category as melatonin, right? which um, which does have beneficial, you know, it, it, does, it has shown to have beneficial sleep pattern uh, uh, enhancing properties, and it, and it does seem to help people with jet lag. Um, I use it occasionally, at least from an anecdotal standpoint, it seems to help me. So, you know, theanine and, and melatonin kind of fall in that same category. There seems to be pretty good research there. But then when you get into stuff like um, dopamine drinks or whatever else they're claiming is in some of this stuff, that's a whole different thing. The, right. the research on that is extremely, extremely slight. And and one thing to keep in mind for anyone listening to this you also have to you also have to know that the way this stuff is ingested matters a lot. Right. Um, you know, it may be one thing to get a straight up injection of a dopamine in your carotid artery, <laughs> but it's a whole another thing to 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 drink twenty milligrams of it in a diluted um, sugar beverage. Right. So you know, I mean, <laughs> you know, think about that the next time you put some money down on one of these drinks, because <laughs> the truth is, it's it's mainly marketing selling this stuff, and. You know, I don't want to poo-poo it entirely because I don't think I don't think there's enough to go on yet to do that. But I think there's enough to be skeptical. 
All right. Well, that's that's good. I just I, like I said again at your blog and everything on DavidDeSalvo.org, the Daily Brain. I recommend everybody check it out every day. You have the coolest articles, so we'll definitely put a link Thank to that. Much. Yeah, and and then your book, um, What Makes Your Brain Happy: Why You Should Do the Opposite. Really cool. I'm looking forward to your your new book that I think you said is coming out next year. We'll definitely new keep book an eye coming out, out for next that. year, and it's 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 just been tentatively named Brain Changer. Brain changer. Nice. I like it. So we're, we're, we're playing off the game changer thing. <laughs> brain changer. We're going to have to have you back on when that comes out. How's that sound? I, I would love to be back on. I've had a lot of fun. All right, David. Thanks again so much, and best of luck. Sure thing. Take care. All righty. Have a great night. Bye-bye. Welcome back. Hope you guys enjoyed that interview with David DeSalvo. We're going to keep this quick since we've already had you on here for a long time. But as Chris mentioned earlier, two action items, two action items, subscribe on iTunes, subscribe within podcasts, downcast, whatever Android app you have, whatever it may be. And the second sign up for our newsletter on smartpeoplepodcast.com. It's in the upper right. Put your input in there. Send it off. A lot of cool stuff. A lot of cool stuff's going to be coming out in the newsletter. It's just going to be a way to get the community up and running. So, like I said, you won't get anything in the inbox um, aside from the confirm link for a couple weeks. But we want to collect emails and and everything first. So when we send it out, we actually at least have a few hundred right off the bat. So thanks for tuning in. We look forward to catching you next week on Smart People Podcast. Last minute action item number three. No, I was avoiding this. Click the Amazon link on our page, smartpeoplepodcast.com. That's a shameless plug. Shameless plug. Had to do it. See you guys next week. Later. Later.